Welcome to Life Centered, a podcast about how looking to the natural world is impacting technology, society, and how we live our lives. I'm Tim McGee, and in this episode, Amelia Tracy and I talked with one of the co-founders of Bureo Skateboards, Ben Knepper's. Bureo is probably one of my favorite companies in the entire world, and while you might not be able to tell I was a bit starstruck, uh, it was great to have Amelia there to keep the interview on track. Ben is an incredible visionary speaker and entrepreneur, and in this episode, we got a chance to not only explore the creation of Bureo and their game-changing approach to manufacturing, but also how his personal experiences and career trajectory have kept him energized and hopeful about the future. Enjoy. So Ben, one of the things that um, maybe you could tell us the story of Bureo and uh, and how that all got started. I'm I'm curious to know know how that all went down. Sure. So um, it really just started with three friends. Um, although we're all originally from the Northeast, we actually first met uh, all together on the other side of the world in in Sydney, Australia. Um, I was working uh, as a, in my career as an environmental consultant, uh, mainly specializing in life cycle assessment and uh, in, in Sydney, Australia at the time. David, uh, who's, who's become, uh, pro- I'd say, my best friend at this stage, he just, he just wedded me in, in my wedding in, in uh, May. And uh, he, re- he moved, thank you very much. Uh, he moved into a spare room in, in the apartment I was renting in, in the northern beaches, and um, he was working in finance at EY. Um, and then at the same time, a, an old engineering buddy from, from engineering school of David's, and uh, they went together at Lehigh in, in Pennsylvania. Um, he was taking a year off and kind of going, doing a around-the-world trip with his brother, and they spent a few months um, a few months in Sydney as well, and we, and we really just connected as friends, just with our appreciation for the ocean environment, surfing, and and that kind of space. And and that third guy is Kevin. I forgot to mention his name. Um, and we connected on that, and and some kind of common thing that we were always fascinated by was, especially in Australia, where most people are spending thousands of dollars and sitting in airplanes for nearly twenty four hours to get there that some people seem to think it's, you know, it's perfectly acceptable to just discard their stuff on these, in these beautiful coastal environments. And, and it always astounded us. And then the more we traveled and, and the traveling we did beforehand, uh, we saw it everywhere. And we were just amazed by, by this problem and, and wanted to, to do something about it. Um, the, Kevin was coming from an engineer design background. We all have mechanical engineering backgrounds, but Kevin came from working at Boeing. So he really had this design experience. David had this finance experience, and I had this kind of sustainability experience. And it was a really interesting combination of minds to, to talk about this issue. But, but then again, you know, we, we carried on with our careers. Uh, that then took me to move. I relocated to Chile. Um, where I did a project continuing my career in environmental consultant with the Chilean government. And, um, but really what struck me was this amazing country with this huge coastline, still very, very untouched, um, and this incredible support network for entrepreneurs. There's great programs in Chile. Uh, I'd, say, I'd say the most well-known is Startup Chile, um, where if you, you come to, to the Chile with a great idea, the, the government's there to support you. And uh, really with that was, was our moment to, to say, hey, remember all those late nights talks we had about doing something about this growing problem of ocean plastic pollution? 
well, here's our chance uh, down here in, in Chile. And, um, and it was just an amazing timing for us. Uh, we were all, you know, five plus years into each of our careers, uh, but still not kind of locked into any long-term plans. Um, so it was just that right time where we had enough experience and know-how under our belts in each of our selected areas, but still the freedom and, and uh, to take a risk and, and take a chance on something new. Um, so with that, we just researched like crazy um, this issue. And the amazing thing we found was it's very solvable. And um, the results out there is, is pretty much coming around the fact that if uh, waste management infrastructure is improved, if people are educated better about this, and if there's a behavior change, you can pretty much uh, take on this issue, a, a lion's share of it. And, um, and with that, we eventually got to this idea, what if we upcycled the plastic into something of high value that was positive and inspiring. And because we were just seeing so much information out there that, that put such a negative light on the issue, everything was doom and gloom. Fortunately, nowadays, it's really changed. Uh, and there's so many great initiatives. But at the time back then, it was just so much information about how the, the oceans are dying and, and more and more of this plastic's getting out there. And we just said, let's do something positive about this. So with that, um, that whole concept of upcycling was our way of, of generating a higher value. And, and within that, we could incorporate those added costs, that added effort to improve the infrastructure in these coastal environments, to uh, fund additional programs, educating people about this, using the products as tools to educate people about these issues and really inspire and initiate that social change which gets deeper into that behavior change. And uh, wh what we really got stuck on really was, was two things, was, you know, what are we going to make? And then when we got to the idea with the skateboard was really, you know, it, it was my prized possession as a kid and we, we grew up uh, skating and surfing. So it just, it was a fun little cruiser, was a great fit for plastic. Um, and then the other thing was Kevin coming from the design background saying, you can't just make it from any plastic out there. And that's mm -hmm. when we took a step back and said, well, what, if this is all about preventing ocean plastic pollution, what actually makes up the, the world's ocean plastic? And just, just out of coincidence at the same time, I was actually doing a research project for the Chilean government for the wild caught fishing industry in Chile. And I was just struck by this, this number that I had no idea 10% of the ocean's plastic pollution is discarded fishing gear. And not only that, it's been identified as the most deadly, the most harmful stuff out there. Just mm. as you can imagine, ghost fishing, it's become a common term. It's continuing to fish and trap marine life, degrade marine ecosystems. It's an underwater tumbleweed as they say just continuing to snag and pull and destroy these these habitats and um and when i got to engage with the fishermen it was again it was a very solvable problem they didn't like the fact that their stuff was getting out there it's just the fact that landfills are privatized it's very expensive to manage this stuff and on the other end um they just didn't know how bad it was of a problem so ultimately rounding out this story what we what we did is is we got this government grant through startup chile and we set out to make the first ever skateboard from uh this this upcycled uh discarded fishing gear and we set up a program what's now known as net positiva which is chile's first ever fishing net collection recycling program 
where we partner directly with fishing communities, give them the, the training and infrastructure equipment to collect back the fishing nets. We compensate for every kilo that we get. And then in addition, put money back into community projects that can focus on preventing all forms of waste in the area. Um, and then with that material, we were able to mechanically recycle it locally in Santiago and, and put, put it into these really positive products. So we started with the skateboard, but then the traction, the response was so incredible, both on the side of the customer and the business, but also even the fishing industry saying, we have more material, will you work with us? And, and what that's leading to now is, is all these new steps where we're looking at more innovative ways. We developed a sunglass collection made from 100% recycled fishing nuts, no added dyes or coatings um, that launched last year and got great traction for us. And now we're just continuing to see more and more ideas out there, thinking of bigger collaborations with other like-minded companies. And, and at the same time, it, it stays us true to our mission, which is really trying to make this a national program and beyond um, in Chile and, and these other countries that are facing this problem. So that's that's a bit of a snapshot. I know there's many, many areas we can get into, but I thought it, I'll, I'll start there for now. Thank you so much. One of the things I wanted to dive into, though, with the uh, International Living Future Institute is how, how did you guys get connected up with them and, and what has that meant to your business or, or, or how do you see that evolving? Yeah, so my background before this was working as a life cycle assessment consultant, really. And the kind of Michael Jordan, if you will, of, of LCA is Greg Norris from, <laughs> yeah. from Harvard and also the Institute. And so I was really lucky um, when, I was, when I was working in Chile to uh, meet Greg for the first time, which was a big deal for me. And ever <laughs> since then, we've been in touch. And, um, and, and he's just been so supportive and responsive of our ideas. And he's really helped me like coach me and advise us as, as we've shaped the business. Um, and so also having that background has always given me in mind of, of this isn't just a gimmick. This isn't just, Hey, cool. They're recycling fishing nets and, and making skateboards or it's about thinking about every step of, of uh of the life cycle and 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 that's really what i'm i've connected with with what what they're doing uh, at the institute and and especially with the the living product challenge and the hand printer model um it, it's about not just doing something less bad but actually doing something that's going to create a net positive and um over the past i'd say about over 12 months really i mean it's really gotten intense the last three um We've worked really hard at, at doing that for our plastic. And uh, this week at the Living Product Expo is going to be our this, this announcement where we're, it's pretty phenomenal. I, I really can't even still wrap my head around it, but we're, we've been able to, what this will be through this certification will pretty much let us say we've created the first ever uh, plastic to, that has a net positive impact on the environment and people. And, and that is going to be something that we've already talked to people um, in business that, that have really been, been impressed by that claim. I mean, I don't think anybody's really been able to do that before. And, um, and I think that's going to just take us further as a business and, and our reputation and our mission. And, and really what it's all about is, is getting other people to look at what they can do and, and, and think about, um, again, going beyond just being less bad and actually doing something good when it comes to industry. Awesome. What's up, Ben? This is Amelia. I'm 
so excited to hear that Chile is so excited about ideas like yours and, and sort of fostering them. Um, and I'm wondering what you think, aside from Startup Chile and Net Positiva, you know, what might be like fairly unique about sort of the culture down in Chile that allowed you to really seed your idea successfully there? Like I heard you say at the beginning that, you know, you were just getting tired of talking about what was going on as if it were like going to destroy us, right? Like in a really negative way. And so you needed to find a way to, to be about it in a positive way. And I'm wondering if maybe the culture around what's going on globally in terms of how we're dealing with our environment is is being observed or experienced in a more positive way down in Chile or if you have any thoughts about that um, because I think that's a pretty critical piece about how we're going to galvanize more work like what you're doing yeah yeah I, I, it's a great question I mean um, there's so many things to say about Chile I mean it's got this incredible natural environment where you go far up north and you've got the dry, dry desert of the Atacama. And then you go all down to the south where you have, you know, this, the most incredible forest in the world, the Patagonia. Um, so, so the range is just so vast. Um, and the country itself is, is so emerging. And um, they, they're very stable shape and, and um, they're, they're really getting it when it comes to thinking about what's next for them. And a really smart move they did with, with programs like Startup Chile is they were seeing how, uh, how the United States has very strict rules when it comes to um, visas. Startup Chile was actually founded by a Chilean student that went to Stanford Business School and was seeing how all of his, his peers were finishing school and so desperately trying to find work in the United States that would allow them to stay. And he just said, my God, well, what if we instead just just attracted them all to come down to Chile and do something here and bring all their amazing talents here? And, and it's just so progressive that um, they the government's fully embraced that. Not only that, they've they've just passed. Um, I don't think there was any objection an extended producer responsibility act. That's one of the most progressive in the world. Um, that's going to have anybody producing packaging materials and introducing them first or second level uh, packaging materials to the economy are going to have responsibilities for, for reclaiming uh, a quota of that back um, through recycling and, and re recollection programs. Um, so there's just so much um, progressive thinking there. Um, and, and at the same time, uh, it was just, I, I think I was just very fortunate in the position I was in. I, I, before I started Boreo, I was, I was already get, growing a really great network with um, industry and government in Chile. And so I had a really great uh, network of people to run these ideas by and, and, and see if it was doable. And, and the, the response was incredible. I mean, the, the nice thing is, is that you've got this developing, emerging economy. So very, it's a developed country, but at the same time, it doesn't have as much of the bureaucracy and the regulations as Europe or, or even uh, the United States or North America might have. So it's kind of like gives you the freedom to just run with ideas. And, and, um, and, but at the same time, it's got the infrastructure to, to get the equipment and, and know-how and capability to make them happen. 
Um, so the recycler we were incredibly lucky with, especially after looking back, um, has the best recycling equipment in the world, which we didn't even know uh, was that rare to find. But but these guys in Santiago, we have now contracted recycling our fishing nets, uh, have uh, Austrian recycling equipment that, that wasn't very common to find, and, and they had it. Um, and that would have stopped us right in our tracks. We didn't have that right there. And then in the same effect, um, we had I had a connection with World Wildlife Fund Chile, and I ran the idea by them really early on. They were the ones to make the introduction. They said, yes, we have a marine stewardship certification going on with, with a really progressive um, fishing syndicate, and I think they'd be willing to work with you. And that was our first chance to get fishing nets. And it was just amazing how many doors opened so quickly in such a short amount of time to get this thing to move. And, and I just echo that for um, anybody else interested. I, I really encourage startups to, to check out Startup Chile. It's a great program. And um, and just overall, Chile's a very supportive country. I mean, you certainly got to fight for it on your own and, and have the passion and, and perseverance because, you know, just like anywhere else in the world, you got you to gotta stick to it to, to make things actually come full circle and happen. But at the same time, they'll give you the playing ground to go for it. That's so awesome. That's so awesome. Yeah, that's really good to hear. And speaking of which, uh, you said that you had been moving around when we did. So where where are you based out of these days? <laughs> well, um, so ever since we started uh, Boreo, I my wife and I have been moving around about every three months. Um, at the moment, I'm just back in the United States for a whole gambit of conferences and events. Uh, last week, I was at Surf Expo in Orlando. This week, I'm going to be at um, in Pittsburgh for the Living Product Expo, and then D.C. for the Our Oceans Conference. And then next week, I'm originally from Massachusetts. I'm going to kind of be able to see the family while, while having events in Boston, New York, and Maine. Um, so normally, I'm we're set up. Um, we actually... One of the things we decided when we were really getting traction with this was if we want to make this work, we should really see what the life is like and what the mentality is with the fishermen. So um, my wife and I actually have moved into the first artisanal fishing syndicate we partnered with. It's about six hours south of um, Santiago, um, just outside the second largest city in Chile, Concepcion. Uh, it's called, it's called uh, Caleta Cochogüe. And it's a beautiful, beautiful community um, that we've actually really fallen in love with. And now we're hopefully finally um, going to start looking into putting some roots in. And, and we're, we're looking at even buying some land and making our own little home there. Um, spending nine months of the year there and then another, the other three um, back, in, back in the United States. My partners, my partners are set up in we're, our kind of headquarters, uh, if you will, in, in Redondo Beach. Sometimes I also ask, like, when do you feel most connected? Like, at what time or, or during what moments do you feel most connected um, to the world? And it could be the natural world or to the human world or they're the same thing. But- yeah, for, for me, I would have to say early mornings hmm. where, you know, things have not been taken over by, you know, all the noises of of the the you know, industry and, and, and machinery and equipment. And it's just still in that state of, of just, just everything's just still kind of pure, you know, 
And uh, I usually like to, to start that with a little walk around. Um, we, like I said, we live in this little coastal community and usually try to start the day just, just uh, going for a little wander down by the beach and, and checking out the area before things really start, start moving again. Uh, I find that time to be pretty spectacular. And then certainly sunsets as well. We get amazing sunsets where we are. You're making this sound really good. I, I hope you have room for people to come visit. Yes, that's that's what we're planning. We, you know, we want to always have a permanent spare bedroom for anybody. So many of my friends and family have hosted me so much through the years. So we're like, okay, this is for all of you. For now on, <laughs> this is us returning the favor. That's great. Um, okay, so one of the other rapid fire questions is: if you could teleport anywhere for one hour and then be teleported back, where would you go? Phew. I mean. So that would be like in the current time of things right now and like current day, like Cur- this very moment. Current time. It could be, you know, within the the next day or so. And uh, and you're, uh, uh, it can be anywhere in the universe. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess there's a couple couple scenarios that, that I'd have to, to throw out. I mean, definitely one, I would love to be a bit of a fly on the wall in like in the whole political, you know, <laughs> circus that's going on being in one of those rooms and seeing like you know if trump is really for real and that he's really you know this what what his real agenda is and all of this and and you know and and i guess to be honest same with same with hillary's team um that would be really that would be a really interesting hour and then um I could certainly pick you know some absolutely beautiful place but i think it would be really hard to be torn away from it again and um so i i think honestly maybe this it might be a little dark but but um the most the most important experience i had in my life was when i worked in a refugee settlement um when i was when i was in university i I spent three months uh in a refugee camp in zambia and i found that to be um very grounding very, and, and, and taught me so much. So I actually would be interested in, in going back to an experience like that, reminding ourselves how, how blessed we are, how fortunate we are for, for the lives we have and the opportunities we have. Um, and, and getting to, to a space like that um, to, to have to, you know, not the nicest, the, it's very tragic, but at the same time, be be a real important reminder to see we've been blessed with our lives that we have been given really any opportunity. We can do whatever we want with with the the, the environment we've been raised in, and and to not forget that. And I think that that was a big lesson I learned back then. And I guess that would be be a, an important thing to be taken back to to now. <laughs> I was just going to ask, do you see? that work with the refugees interweaving back into your life at some point, or would you be interested in, in, I don't know, maybe workforce development or or something where you, you work on, for lack of a better term, social innovation with this sort of enterprise that you've got going on? Of course. Yeah. I mean, I think it's all about, I mean, it's all under the same theme of, of empowering people, you know, ultimately what we want to do with Net Positiva is um, to to hand this whole business over to the fishing communities 
um, in each each community, we're training up and giving the infrastructure and compensating them per kilo. And it, it's the, the idea is that they're seeing the value in this material. So just as they're capturing and selling the fish, they're going to be capturing and, and selling us us the, the discarded fishing gear. And um, and that's something we at the end of the day we'd love to just completely hand over to them. And, and that's that's something um, that I think. I experienced in, in Africa was, was trying to empower the people. It's one thing to go and, and make a donation and help, and that, that's always important, especially in critical times, but it's a whole other thing to empower these people to be able to um, take action on their own. And, and, and that's really what they want at the end of the day, is they don't, they don't want a bag of rice. They want to be able to provide for their family. And, um, and I feel like if I, if, if the right opportunity comes along to, to go back to Africa with this, I, uh, I would, yeah, that would definitely be a no brainer for me. Mm, or maybe not even necessarily Africa, but like coastal communities that are dealing with, you know, major environmental destruction and, and displacement, right? Like climate Absolutely. refugees. And, and that's, that's, uh, you know, and we've seen that in Chile and, a lot, of, not in a in a too drastic of a way, but um, I mean, uh, where I'm living now, that there there's a, a big protest going on with with um, it's a long story, but basically there there's a big infrastructure development that could be really compromising the artisanal fishing industry's activity um, in the south in the Patagonia and Chile way this this past um, earlier this year uh, there was a, a red tide. Um, that that completely took away the opportunity for the fishermen to fish and, and make a living down there. So um, those are those are serious things I've 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 been able to see firsthand. And um, you know, not that we're necessarily solving them, but it definitely feels good that we can be a part of the solution and take on an early leadership role, right? So as that emerges, however it does, you guys are there. Absolutely, yeah. The thing that I'm just stuck on with the refugees, and thank you for sharing that story, Ben. I'm right now. There are more refugees in the world than there ever have been, and and I think it's an open question for a lot of people of what can we do, or people who haven't had that experience that you've had. And one of the things that we've seen on this podcast several times is people talking about the importance of empathy and how that's shaped their own career and their own trajectories and it sounds like that might be something that you've had that that those experiences where you've recognized the advantages that that you might have or recognized the you know had that empathy of how do you help uh, or or how can we be a better part of this world has has been part of your journey as well would would you characterize that the same or has empathy played a role in your yeah, I, I think I think empathy is a really is a really great word to, to capture that. Um, I mean, it's it's you can't help but have empathy when when you see it firsthand. I mean, the most basic raw um, uh, experience that you, that they're going through is simply any moment at any given day, us talking right now. Suddenly, this is the most common story you hear. Just just like this moment, you suddenly hear gunshots, trucks driving in, and people suddenly fleeing. Whoever you're with, you're with. You run, 
you make it to the border, you might be lucky and be with family members or a friend, but a lot of the time you're, you're with whoever you were just, you were, had to flee with. And now suddenly you've been informed that your country's in civil war. It's no, no longer safe to return. Um, and, and, uh, you know, we're going to have to take you to this refugee camp in a bordering country, um, where they're going to set you up with a blanket, a pot, a little bit of food and a, a little piece of land and, and not a very ideal environment and, uh, and, and wish you on your way. And that's it. And, and I don't think that obviously that brings a lot of empathy for a person that's been thrown into that position. But unfortunately you see the other side of it a lot more, which is, you know, looking at these people as, oh, they're coming into my, <clears throat> my country where I paid taxes and, and they're, they're coming in and getting all these free handouts. They, again, it, it, they don't want to have this. They want to, they want to come back to being able to take a, coming back to empower, empowerment. They want to come back to, you know, li living the lives they had. I met people that were lawyers with <coughs> government officials with large houses and very successful people. And they had, this was just unfortunately the circumstance that they fell into. Completely unjustifiable. And, um, and, and yeah, it, it's just unfortunate that not enough people understand that. Mm. And, uh, and yeah, that, that was, that was very eye opening for that time for me. Thank you for sharing that story. I, I, I don't think we can hear enough of those to remind us. So I appreciate that. Okay. Back to the rapid fire. So this one's a little bit, uh, quirky, but if you were able to splice in one gene or characteristic from any organism or animal on earth into people, what would it be and why? <laughs> That's a really interesting question. I mean, okay, I'm not going to give you, I'm not a biologist or any, any type of scientist by trade, so I'm not going to give you any real scientific definition or title, but I would love for us to have some kind of trait that animals have where they understand that in order to exist, you have to coexist with, with the surrounding environment you, you are in. And uh, it, our culture has, has completely taken that away from us, where people don't even... I had a friend in, in grad school um, that, that would always correct people because they'd be drawing these models and they'd say, society, environment, like the, the crossover diagrams. And they said, no, no, no. And he draws a circle around everything. He's like, no, we're existing in the environment always. And, and people don't have that connection enough. So something that would bring us back to having this, this, this inside of us, like so many other animals just naturally uh, coexist in it. And they understand that in order for me, my, for us to survive, this needs to survive and that needs to survive. And, and that, that's the, the, what sustainability is all about. That's what really just, just continuing to, to live on a healthy planet is all about. Um, so having that trade, I'd say whatever that might be called, I, I like that, and that I think in a in a small way, that's what your company is doing for our society. So thank you for that. I, I'd like to think so, yeah, in our own little way. So this one's a little bit darker, but uh, it, it can can go some interesting places. But what is one of the most harmful things that we're doing today, but nobody recognizes it? I would have to say, like, well, which is kind of in itself that that what you're describing is is indifference um is being indifferent 
is is really what it's all about and and not educating yourself and and being indifferent um so letting too many things happen that we all know are wrong yet we still let them happen um I'm trying to, I don't know why it jumped at me because I, I don't even really have a good example of that, but hmm. I just, I guess I find myself so many times, um, people saying, yeah, I know this is bad, but you know, what are you going to do? And if instead we looked at each of those moments and said, I guess the whole idea of like people having to have a job that's deemed acceptable society, having to have this or that, or, or falling into the whole game of, of what marketing and and culture plays such a heavy influence on us of of what success means and what happiness means and instead really going back to um not being indifferent but being genuine and saying this is what makes me happy yeah it might not be what what the commercials are showing me is happy and successful but but it's what makes me happy and i'm really lucky that i feel like i've found that for myself and and um and really hope others can can get there too and, and i think that's also a big way of of connecting your values and and uh, you know everybody knows that the that we're in a very critical situation when it comes to the way the earth is at the moment and yet we're continuing to go in this wrong direction and i think a lot of that has to do with indifference and and um just lack of understanding Ben, do you think that there was something specific about how you were raised or a relationship you had either with the earth or your family or something that instilled that to you early on in your life? Definitely. Um, my parents had very different mindsets, and but they, they, I think, come together in a really great way. Um, my father came from the Netherlands. He was from a, a farm with, with nine children. Um, you know, back when, you know, you raise kids to have more workers in your, to, to run the farm. And he really made the American dream for himself where, um, he moved to the United States at a young age, uh, in his early twenties and, and, um, built himself a successful business. And the thing that he always told me was, you know, you had the classic thing, which was, um, you can do anything you can, as long as you put your mind to it. But the other one that he said more subtle, um, but later on I realized how much it connected with, was he would he would show me his work. I mean, he he worked in flower bulbs. Coming from Holland, like that was that was what he loved. Um, and he said, you know, every day of my job I love coming in. And he said, you know what, the best job you're going to do is the one you love to do the most. And for me, um, that really connected, and and that's what I tried to seek out in my twenties. I, I I did work all around the world. I I did my undergraduate degree at Northeastern because they've got this great co-op program where you can do all these different internships. Um, and, and that really was the seed that planted early on for me. Now, on the other side of it, I had a mother who came from just being an artist in a real free spirit. And whenever I was getting a new opportunity, hey, I'm, I'm going to go, I got a job internship opportunity in Ireland. You think I should take it? You know, my dad would always be the businessman and say, well, you know, is this going to really make sense? And are, are, is this going to be good for your career? Da, 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 da. And, and my mom was always the one that would, would be great to compensate where I'd, I'd call and get her advice. And she'd say, always be, you know, if this is this going to make you happy? Is this what, you know, you, you feel right about it and about your life? Then go for it. And, and it was a really nice compensation to have those two 
Um, and also, I think it was a lot of just just um, giving me the freedom to to be raised to say, look, uh, there wasn't a lot of you know discipline when it came to you know you're you're being grounded or this is getting taken away or that. It was more just you know, look, we raised you and we trust you. And and if I did slip up, it wasn't so much you're grounded. It was more like it, it, it could almost cut through deeper, actually. But they'd say, you know, we're disappointed because we, you know, we raised you and we, we trust you and we 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 know that you know better. And um, and it, along that way, I feel like it makes you correct things yourself rather than have others come in and force you to correct things that you still might be fighting with. Is there a book or something you're reading right now that you would recommend or give to other people? Yeah, I mean, I, I could list off like all the sustainability books, but to be honest, like I, I read so many of those earlier on that I've kind of gotten burnt out in that space and have found like the same lessons. Yeah, that's okay. I know that concept. I know that, that kind of thing. I mean, I definitely would recommend in that space if that's still new to you, you know, cradle to cradle, natural capitalism, um, limits to growth. Uh, um, gosh, Amory Levins, anything by Amory Levins or Hunter Levins. Um, the really great stuff. Uh, but lately, I mean, now that I've kind of getting more into this entrepreneurial space, the book that really got me pumped recently was the book on the the book. I think it came out last year on Elon Musk, mm-hmm. and just what a phenomenal guy. I mean. Uh, so driven, so determined to do what he does. And, he, and, and the amazing thing is it's all based on hard science. I mean, obviously, he's a brilliant, just absolute genius. You know, read, read two books a day and had to, like, haggle with his local librarian to get them to bring in more books because he was reading them all. <laughs> and, and now, with that hard, hard foundation of, of incredible engineering physics and math and science background he he's already done all the calculations to say this is doable and it's just a matter of people getting it done and with that he's just kind of just totally set the bar on saying like oh no it's not a question if it can be it can or can't be done i've already shown it can be by these calculations now it's just about all all of us rallying together and doing it and I think that's just amazing to see that um, really starting to, to pay off. And, and it's great to see people out there today um, really taking taking that action and, and she, seeing that, that just pure drive like that can really change the world. Yeah, he has such confidence in those calculations, in where what is possible. And, and I feel like uh, for you guys, uh, there's a lot of confidence in what you're doing today. Is there, is there a place where that confidence comes from for you guys? Have you done all the calculations? Where, like, where is it going <laughs> in the future? I mean, honestly, uh, from from our standpoint, the just like we had some, we had set the bar at such a a. a for us, like we just want to sustain our lives and 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 know that we're we're making a difference. And, and the big question you always you always hear is, you know, if we look back 10, 20 years from now, would we regret anything we do? And I ask myself that a lot. And I always have the answer that I would definitely not be regretting any of this. So uh, having that attitude coming in allows you to have the freedom 
to remove the desperation, remove the fear, the fear of failure, and instead just say, you know, no, we're trying. We're we're trying something completely different here, and and if we fail, that's okay. It's all part of the process, and and at least we know, and we can look at ourselves in the mirror and say, at least we tried. We tried to do something good. So coming in with that attitude, rather being than being so fearful of of failure uh we're just kind of winging it and i think a lot of it's we've just been really blessed with with how things have played out so far and i like your the way you look at it and say hey you know like if i looked back 20 years from now would i regret any of this no because i'm doing what i'm trying to do and you know i wouldn't have it any other way okay yeah and and on that same point i mean i just add that that for us we know we're not going to be the ones to, to to solve this. Even even just fishing nets as a problem is a is a huge huge challenge. Even in just as a na- as a nation across the country of Chile, um, what we really see making a difference is is just like my dad got to plant a seed for me, uh, planting a seed for that next generation. We really see. If they come in with this at such a young age into them that they can, I, I really believe the talent and, and the know-how out there is going to be, that's the generation that's really going to get it done. Not to say I'm not going to continue trying now. No, but you're proving it's possible, which is the most, it's one of the most important parts, you know? Absolutely. Uh, so is there, what is the next big step for you guys? Is there anything that you're planning in the future that you can share or are you, uh, do you have plans for world domination? As you said, probably not, but uh, you never know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so for us, um, you know, the the process has been, I mean, we, we've certainly planned things out. We've gotten amazing advisors. Now being in Patagonia's 20 million change program, um, we get to we get great feedback and advising of, of the, the business strategy through Patagonia, which is a tremendous uh, we've been through these several startup programs, which has also helped us build everything out. Um, but still, at the same time, a lot of it's been very organic. And what we're finding now takes shape is, um, okay, we started with, with these skateboards, and now we built in the sunglasses. We're still not even, you know, coming close to the material and the opportunity that's out there for harnessing it and turning it into not only good products, but a lot of funds for these communities. Um, and that's what we're seeing next is Boreo. We want to keep in this really positive fun space in the action sports industry, continuing to innovate and, and develop more products in that space. But beyond that with net positiva, we have this huge surplus of material through the net positiva program, collecting these fishing nets. Um, I'd say right now in Chile alone, we could easily be getting to 200 tons of material turning over annually in the next next couple of years. And, and as we continue to build that, we could even, I'd say it's very feasible to be breaking 1,000 tons a year. Um, so that's, you know, over 2 million pounds of, of material, raw material. So with that, what we're finding is uh, a great interest from like-minded companies. I mean, I think it's it, we, we're allowed to report now that, that, you know, there's been a few interviews already that Patagonia's released where um, they're now looking at putting this material in, into, into their, their products and, and seeing 
how they can phase out their use of nylon and, and replace it with our net positive, what we're calling now net positive of plastic, which is a recycled nylon six. And uh, so we've got about uh, six or seven projects in the works at the moment. Nothing I can really publicly announce yet. Um, where there, there are other like-minded companies in, in very different um, product categories um, that are finding other ways to make use of the plastic. And it's a really great way where we can um, stay true to our mission, really continue uh, growing that Positiva, har- harvesting this material, supporting these communities, obviously preventing this waste. Um, and but on a business side, it makes sense too because it can create more exposure for Boreo, have more people that would have never heard of us now seeing it in all these different products that that would you know aren't aren't skateboard riders and aren't people that happen to come across their sunglasses and now now know about us and at the same time obviously allow us to, to build the business further as well. And at the same time, um, you know, we'll we'll keep still having having our fun products in this action sports space. So I think that's really the next turn for us is is going from you know ten to twenty tons of material put into skateboards and sunglasses a year to hundreds of tons, and with that uh, funding, not just a, a handful of community projects, but you know, fifty to even a hundred a year. Mm, I love it. Okay, so. Being that you're you've done LCA in the background, where does my skateboard go? And I've finished riding it, broken a couple wrists, you know, busted it up. Uh, <laughs> where do I take the skateboard at its end of life for my use? Where where does it go? Absolutely, yeah. I I um I keep talking to my partners about about making this campaign public, but they're continuing to say. Our, our boards are, are so long-lasting, it's too soon to display this, but I, I think in the near future we're going to start to market this more. But all of our products um, made from our plastic, we reward our customers uh, to return it back to us. In the case of your skateboard, we can collect it back, chip it, bring it back to chips, um, like small pieces of plastic, and then feed it back into, the, into making future skateboards. Um, so that would be part of the resin that, that goes into to a new skateboard deck or, you know, even sunglasses. Um, but yeah, w- the, the model is really, we reward our customers for returning back to us. So we have such a, you know, a close, uh, knit, uh, client base at the moment that the very few times that, that something has happened in the board, um, we get an email about it and we say, send it back to us and we'll, you know, we'll give you a really good discount on a new purchase or, or uh, throw you a free T-shirt or something like that. So we try to reward them um, for having that end-of-life solution in mind. I love it. I but can't at the wait. same time, these are very long-lasting. <laughs> <laughs> I love mine. It's fantastic. Yeah, no, no worries. It's one of my favorite things. Great, great to hear. Okay. One thing that keeps coming up for me is... You probably know this, Ben. Well, you might not know all of it. But so this podcast was initiated because Tim and I are both uh, revolving around biomimicry, which you probably have heard if you've been in this sustainability space for a while. Um, And so, you know, that's just basically studying, geeking out on nature. Um, And so then you probably know that, like, instead of using nets, like, marine life especially i think it's whales right tim or or maybe i don't know what other 
species, but um, they use bubbles mm. to to catch their prey in the water. And so there are companies that are looking at how to use bubble nets instead of fishing nets to effectively do the same thing. Um, wow, so yeah, I did not know about that. That's that's really fantastic. I'm gonna have to learn more about that. Tim might know more. I don't know that much about it, but I think that that's kind of an awesome, especially when you're thinking about the entire circular piece of, of you know, marine life and, and how our ecosystems work with um, sort of the industrial practices that we've, we've decided that we need. Yeah, I mean, uh, for, for us, we've always been looking into better ways to do it because obviously, you know, you're getting at a really important point that that we certainly ask ourselves all the time is is um you know is this the right solution to be encouraging are we encouraging them to continue using uh a, this polymer based uh material that that is going to be coming having this end of life and um and for us it's really about uh you know our whole motto it's a spanish saying is is poco a poco it's just little by little you know we started with this one idea, with this one fishing syndicate, got momentum there, and then went to more. And and um, and and ultimately, we'd love to take this even further. I mean, we would love to, at the end of the day, bring ourselves out of business where there's not even a need for us anymore. But unfortunately, uh, at the time, uh, this is what industry does. And to go up to these the, these fishermen and and tell them they got to switch out the material. And, you know, there's no other better option at the moment. If there is, we would be there to champion it, but there isn't um, for for the case of, for at least of these fishermen. We've researched other methods, um, biodegradable fishing nets, other materials, and unfortunately, um, it's not out there yet, readily available at a price that they can afford and, and, and works for the performance and life that they need for these nets. Um, we're an active member of the Global Ghost Gear Initiative, which is run through um, the UN and the World Animal Protection. And um, through that, we're, we're always trying to be on the pulse of what, what more can be done. Um, there's a big stuff, uh, a lot of work going on on tracking the nets, doing more thorough reporting of just kind of every net going out to sea is being reported coming back. And, and um, we're actually working on a traceability database that, that's going to be able to track that from our materials. Um, that's reporting, you know, every kilo of net we're getting from each syndicate so they can, they can get that feedback as well. Um, so that really ultimately they can be, okay, we bought 10 tons this year and we gave Boreo 10 tons. That means we had zero going, being left at sea. Um, but yeah, further than that, uh, it's definitely just our... Um, interaction with the fishermen has already started to get them thinking what else can they do and that's that's the cool thing it's definitely not getting the problem solved but it's again it's planting that seed and we're, and we're really it's really cool to see that starting to happen so that's cool two other questions I hope they don't exhaust you but one no, um, I love <laughs> Mapuche right Boreo is a Mapuche name the one of the indigenous peoples. So, is there any is there any connection with what you're doing with that group, um, or is it just something that you've learned on your way and you really liked it? And yes, it up? there's actually a really funny story behind that. Um, so, when we started the company, I 
first came up with the idea of calling the company Minnow Skateboards. And um, because when I grew up back in New England, a minnow was a very common small fish. And, and we wanted to make our boards in the shape of a fish. And we still actually, our first model is still called the minnow. Um, and I was, but I was living in Chile at the time and, and I ran it by some of my Chilean friends and I said, yeah, I got the, the idea coming together and I want to call the company Minnow Skateboards. And they were all like, what? No, you cannot name the company Minnow. I was like, what do you mean? He's like, man, so Chileans have, uh, a lot of Chilean slang and a common slang term in Chile is, uh, that they, they were filling me in on was like. Uh, basically saying like, man, you know, you remember what Amina is, right? And Amina is a is a pretty girl. And they said, so the male version of that is Mino, which is a, a good looking guy. And so they're <laughs> like, so therefore, you're titling your company Good Looking Guy Skateboards. Yes, <laughs> that's not, please. That's not going to fly, man. So, so they were the ones to really push back at me and be like, come on, man, if you're doing this in Chile, you should use a Chilean word. So... Um, that's where I really put it back to my friends and, and was like, okay, yeah. And, th and then they introduced me to, uh, the native language of Chile, um, and uh, of the native people of Chile. Um, and that's where I, f I discovered Boreo. So Boreo means waves and, um, obviously right there, it's a cool connection, but, but the deeper thing that we, we found to be really beautifully symbolic is, is how does a wave start? A wave starts with a small disturbance in the surface of the ocean. And here we are, these three gringos in Chile, starting with this small change when there's this ocean of plastic. But just like a wave, with more time and energy, you can become this great force of change, just like a wave breaking on a shoreline somewhere in the world. And that's how we see Braille, is we see, okay, we start with this little thing. We're probably not going to make a difference. You could be all negative about it, or you could say, no, we keep going, man, with all this time and energy put behind it. We could become this amazing force of change. So that, that really connected with us. And then beyond that, I mean, our engagement um, – Thus far, we haven't really um, done a lot of work in, in Mapuche territory, um, but we certainly plan to in the future. I mean, the activity, the interaction we've had I, it, as a whole in Chile with the communities, I mean, we've, we were launching our fourth community project um, in, this month, uh, and the whole idea is to give back to, to the local people, especially the traditional Arte artisanal people of Chile to continue to protect um, the way they've been doing things for so many generations is, is really a big important part of what we're doing. So yeah. we haven't, you know, forced that agenda yet with specifically with the Mapuche, but we certainly want that to happen over time. Yeah, I think that's awesome. Um, the second thing that I am sure is on your radar, but I just wanted to hear what you have to say is so you guys are pulling this, you're, you're not directly, but um, you are a force <laughs> involved with pulling this plastic pollution out of, uh, of the ocean. And so therefore, there must be some sort of reinvigoration and like new growth of ecosystems that are becoming possible because of the work that you're doing. And I'm wondering if, you know, if there's any 
like tracking of like, oh, you've taken out this much plastic from this many square um, hectares of, of, of coastline, right? And so like what happens over three or five years after those places have been cleaned up and like maybe we can start to quantify that. Not that I'm talking about ecosystem services or anything that's necessarily going to drive money exchange, but just, you know, to, to increase the um, quantitative value of of the story right to make it build into that tidal wave that you're talking about yeah i mean i i would love to to be able to see and and say that yeah we've we've got a you know we've we've restored this and that but but i mean to be honest um you know it's still very early days with us we started with um uh with just these these vast supplies that were just readily available and now um i can definitely say what we're seeing that's just been tremendous is um when you get to these really small scale artisanal communities and you're going into them and and we're about to break 20 um different communities we're working in now um and the in the case of these small scale artisanal ones uh the, one of the first things we're asking is, you know, what are you guys, how are you guys currently managing the nets? And the fishermen will simply tell you that they are discarding them in, into the marine environment. And if there's too much to move around, uh, they're just lighting it on fire in the community. And uh, they don't like those options. But guess what? There's, there's, they're trying to just provide for their families. They don't really have this uh, liberty of, of having extra cash around to, to do more than that. And unfortunately, there's not really an infrastructure in place before this that could do something with it. So what we've been able to do is, is set up these collection points directly in the communities, partner with the local uh, community members, and, and make a really beautiful model where on one side, um, you've got these large commercial fishing companies that have these huge supplies of nets um, that they're just, they're now donating to us where they've agreed to not take any money, uh, for the nets and instead, um, donate all of it to this, these surrounding artisanal communities. So we're putting all that money from the, the lion's share of the nets from these big commercial guys. Um, and then on the other side, uh, we're also getting the, the nets directly from the artisanal fishermen. And it's at first you're like, okay, you know, the commercial guys are going to have the nets, the big supply of nets and, and the, the artisanal stuff is, is just, you know, it's a good thing to do because it, it's really what, what's stopping from directly getting in discarded in the natural environment. And, but what I'm seeing firsthand is they're actually accumulating a competing amount of material. It's, it's pretty incredible because artisanal fishermen are, they may have smaller nets, but they're breaking every week. Um, so it's constantly like these collection points are these large industrial maxi sacks with a wood frame that these are one ton bags. And I'm seeing them fill up sometimes on a weekly basis. Um, so it's amazing to see like how much material that is becoming that would have otherwise been ending up, unfortunately, uh, discarded in the natural environment or burnt up into a really toxic smoke that would have been very harmful for that community. Sounds like you need a video. We need to make a video. <laughs> We've got a few. We've got a few. Yeah. I, I, uh, I was just down 
and uh, I get the most random requests. I, I there was a national news channel from Germany that reached out to me, and next thing you know, I'm in one of the little fishing villages, uh, skating around with this German news reporter that wanted to cover us. And and um, but yeah, we've got some videos online. I'll be happy to share with you. You know, we got uh, AJ Plus did a video. Um, BuzzFeed did a video with us, but but yeah, I definitely want to keep updating because because this you know those those videos were still pretty early on, and now having it come full circle where we're having like commun- the community composting center installed now in community and and um, recycling facilities set up at the local school by the beach uh, installed now, and that's all from the money generated from the fishing nets, and that it's cool to have that coming full circle. That's awesome. Yeah, and we'll put links to all of those videos on the podcast show notes uh, down below so people can check all those out. And on that note, uh, I had one last question is where can people find out more about you or about the company? Uh, Where do you like to send people online or or to a movie or to videos? What is the best place for people to learn more and get engaged? I would definitely say check us out at Bureo.co. So B-U-R-E-O.co. That's your easiest. Obviously, we're we're very active on social media. I'd say Instagram's the one we're actively. Again, lots of footage there day to day from the life of the boys up in in California to my work down with the communities in Chile. Um, you can follow us there. Facebook. Uh, all of it's under Bureo. So if you search B-U-R-E-O, I'm sure you'll have plenty to, to discover there. Sweet, Ben. Well, it's clear that you guys have a lot of love and a lot of passion, and I'm really freaking excited to cross paths with you again. It's really awesome to talk to you. Thank you for your time. That's my pleasure. Like I said, all of these times I get to do this kind of stuff, it gives me more purpose for the work I'm doing. And I just really appreciate the feedback and and the opportunity to share our story. And that's a wrap on episode four with Ben Knappers. Amelia and I hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. And as always, thank you for listening all the way to the end. Life-Centered Podcasts can now be found on iTunes. And if you like what you heard, it really does help us out to give us a rating and make a few comments. Until next time, this is Tim saying over and out.